This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Sam Tamimi, Tara Wigley, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. I am so excited about speaking with you too. Um, It's a shame that you're not here in my home and I'm cooking you dinner, um, but that will happen. It will happen in time. Congratulations on the beautiful cookbook. Um, It's called Palestine, uh, which is, I guess, phonetic for Palestine. Would that be right? Oh, yes. (laughs) Would that be right? Okay, it's really a beautiful cookbook. It's kind of like a pigeon pair to Jerusalem, Yotamotolengi and Sam Tamimi's cookbook. Of course, I've got mine on the shelves together. I like all my books to be matching, and these are a perfect match. It is really just, it's not just a beautiful cookbook, but it's also so beautiful to read and so informative um, and also so emotional. And I don't know why that was for me, but often I read parts and I just... I don't know, I just started crying just from the way that you, um, that you present the history of Palestine, I think is uh, so uh, level and unbiased and very, very generous. So anyway, firstly, I want to talk about how you both um, came to writing this book. I know a little bit about your history, Sam. Can you please tell us firstly how you got to London and how you came to, I guess, have met Ottolenghi and Tara? Yeah. I, I left uh, home '97 uh, because many reasons, but basically the main reason behind it is I was really ambitious and I wanted to kind of work in. I mean, I've done work. I've, I've done work in like three of the major kind of uh, Tel Aviv restaurants at the time in the '90s, where you know, um, it's not like today where they have a lot of. Uh, excited kind of uh, restaurants around so I just wanted to kind of change first of all and also uh, expand my career and I couldn't do that back home so London was the kind of the place I chose to and where was home Uh, uh, Jerusalem first of all and then I, I, I moved to Tel Aviv because a partner and also because of work Mm-hmm. Uh, but I used to kind of move between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem the whole right. time because of family as well. And 97, where I met Yotam as well, he, he moved to, to London from Amsterdam the same year. And we, he just came basically to work in a place where I used to be the head chef for the savory section. And then he became the head pastry. And we became quite friends and uh, quite close. And then two years after, uh, Yotam decided that he wants to open his own place and they, he offered me a job and I wasn't sure because we were so close and friends. And But then two weeks later, I joined, uh, you know, the first project, which is the shop in Notting Hill. I have been there, yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, 
And the rest is history. It's like 18 years of uh, a few delis and three restaurants and six or seven cookbooks. Yeah, uh, wow. Yeah. So you guys are still business partners? Yes, we are. You yeah. are in the businesses together. Okay. And then, Tara, how did you come into it? I came in just nearly 10 years ago. Yeah. So I'd be, I used to be in publishing for the first uh, oh, in my really? 20s. So I was working for a, an agent as a reader and then moved to editorial. Yeah. Um, and, and then we had uh, twins and then I decided to change career and I thought it would be totally practical and normal to go off to cookery school at that point. So I took these little 18-month-old twins off to Ballymaloo in Ireland for this incredible three-month cookery course and then came, had the time of my life and then came back and was trying to make it work in restaurants for about six months before I realised. Hang on, hang on a second. How on earth did you think that restaurants would be easier than editorial? Well, I don't know. I mean, after, after, after six months, I looked around the kitchens and realised there was a reason there was no other young mums there. And I remember so clearly once, it was about one in the morning and I was cycling along Upper Street just past the Islington Deli and uh, it was snowing and I was on my bike and I was so hungry and, and I just had this real life moment of what am I doing? Like I've got these babies that are about to wake up in about four hours. Like why am I making life so difficult? And then I went for an interview at the Noppy restaurant, which was just opening at the time. I've and I really connected. <laughs> oh, beautiful. And uh, really connected with Sarit Packer, who was recruiting at the time. He's now at Honey & Co. And she was the one who said to me, like, dude, what are you trying to do? You, I mean, it's just there's too, too much going on at this one point. So she kind of sent me on my merry way. And then I was at home just trying to then fill up people's freezers and fridges sort of at home and just have a bit more of a low-key job. And then I just got this call out the blue and it just happened that Yotam was looking for someone who kind of slightly fell between stools, who had a background in kind of words and writing and... Um, but also had an interest in food, but someone who wasn't a professional cook because he wanted someone to have, sort of help him out with his columns and the testing and the, the writing, yeah. uh, but very much from a home cook perspective. So I was just sort of that lucky person who was slightly falling between stools. And also it was just an amazing logistic thing that I could work from normal hours rather than cycling home at one in the morning. So it was just, it was complete, complete luck in terms of timing. And then I met Sammy about six months later in one of the kitchens where he again shooed me on my way and said, who is this girl trying to like work in kitchens? <laughs> she needs to get out of here. She's not a professional chef. Um, so I've never been a professional chef, but just this sort of interest in food and words and writing and, and it all kind of worked out yeah, as it always yeah. does in the Ossolengi family. It is an incredible story for me because I feel, you know, there's always lots of plays on words like the cook and the baker and the cook and this. And when I read the Philistine cookbook, I thought it's the cook and the writer is what I thought, the collaboration. Yeah. Well, just this idea of recipes and stories is one that we constantly weave throughout the book because recipes are like stories in terms of being are. kind of handed on and details changing and, and stories. And for us, this idea of stories rather than the one story of Palestine or even just Sammy's story. Um, we didn't kind of want to have that weight on him or on Palestine. And so this is, this is our way in instead of all these stories of all these incredible people, as well as all our incredible recipes of over a hundred recipes. Yeah. So tell me how you came to write the book together. I, I guess, Sammy, you had been thinking about it for some time. So had you, had you been yeah, thinking I mean, about it? Yeah. yeah. This, I mean, this project was, uh, on the radar for for many years but you know life gets so busy and you 
end up doing so many other things and then you just felt like it's the right time and also the market is is different now and palestinian food and cooking is a lot more kind of on other uh, the spotlight now uh, so it, this this also helped when we when we started me and tara the the, the whole project i only had like an endless list of uh, recipes that I wanted to put in the book. And we started working from that, but kind of, we were lucky because we had also the time, the time frame. I mean, the, the publisher were really good with us and they gave us enough time to work on it and try so many recipes. And a lot of the recipes that we tried also didn't make it to the book because I was very kind of loyal to the whole tradition and traditional cooking, Palestinian cooking and uh, and then we had a debate about that between us, and then we we changed the way we wanted to um, construct a whole kind of recipe um, between being uh, traditional and also quite new, because you know a lot of these Palestinian uh, recipes are amazing and delicious, but there's an issue with first of look of the dishes, yes. where you know as Lebanese you probably know yeah. it is kind of yeah. brown and beige. And the other aspect of it is people don't have the time to spend three hours making vine leaves from scratch. So uh, we wanted to um, not lose the essence of the recipes and the ingredients and the flavors, but to present something that people actually can do on a Wednesday night after work. The the vine leaves is a really good example of one where we've just constantly been, we're very mindful of the practicalities and wanting it to be A, a book of, a sort of a book to help people understand and know more about Palestine and the people of Palestine, but also very much a book that people are using when they get home from work on a Monday night. So the vine leaves that Sammy is talking about, rather than kind of expecting people to spend hours individually wrapping them, we've just got the whole thing in a in a sort of square tray bake, um, and you can just sort of put your vine leaves in there, and they tip over the edge, and you pile in the rice, and then fold it up, and then bake the whole thing. And it's you've got all the beautiful flavors and essence of it, but it's it's something that takes an absolute kind of tenth of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so that was that was sort of a constant balance and, and debate and sort of energy for the whole process of writing the book of, of uh, traditional recipes. But then also not wanting to write the book that's available elsewhere because these recipes are available if you want to get the traditional recipe for a tabouleh, for example. Um, a tabouleh. Yeah. <laughs> <A> tabouleh. <laughs> I, like I like that. A little bit of French twist on tabouleh. <laughs> I like that a lot. Tabouleh. I'm going to remember that. Hey, you know, when isolation hit, I had plenty of time to be making vine leaves. If only you had known. <laughs> No, it's true. We're seeing, I mean, there's a couple of recipes in the book that we're seeing people really <laughs> making. Like there's a chicken shawarma yeah. pie with phyllo, which, which we thought would be one of the sort of ones that people would only say for a celebratory meal. But we're seeing it all over, all yeah, over yeah. Instagram. People do have time for it and baking as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Interspersed in the book is um, some stories that I really, really enjoyed about people, Palestinian people, uh, mainly food growers and, you know, the seed library, for instance, Vivian and the seed library. Tell me about those stories and did you meet those people and how did you source them? Tara? Um, yeah, we, we met them. Sammy and I were lucky enough to go together to Palestine three times. So we've the, uh, these people are our our friends we've hung out with them a lot it's not a huge geographical area so once you're kind of there and showing an interest in food and people you'll very quickly meet Vivian and Islam and 
people at the Tent of Nations and people olive oil producers. So if you if you want them, they're they're there. You could walk around Palestine with a copy of our book and go and meet these people. They'd be happy to talk. So just hanging out, really spending time. It was quite funny because I, I when we were sort of setting things up in the test kitchen, I would send all these people emails and try and kind of book them in for scheduled appointments. And Sammy would sort of watch on and slightly shake his head and say, "This wasn't quite the way things were going to work in Palestine." And we needed just to sort of turn up, have the time, have the five six hour meals, spend the day, and just and just get the stories and. Again, as Sammy says, we just were lucky enough not to be in a rush. So mm. we could really go back two, three times and, 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 and then me as an outsider could observe what's going on. And a lot of times Sammy's just speaking Arabic with people. So I'm, I'm just sort of watching. So we, we were just lucky not to be in a rush. Yeah. Sammy, I mean, I guess this is for you, but um, I, I mean, I've only been back to Lebanon a few times, but I remember this, I think it was the second time that I went back. My grandmother took me to introduce me to all her friends. And of course, everybody is cooking something in every house that you visit. Yeah. And what I saw there, and you'll know this, is they invite you to taste their cooking as it's kind of like an act of um, of kindness and welcoming, and you know they. So you go there, and you know they one particular one. They were making kuse blubbin, right? And yeah. so it was the zucchini and the, the uh, yogurt soup, and of course she dished them. And she's like, you know, what is? It, does it taste good? And like as if ever I was going to say. <laughs> Well, uh, here's me from Australia, you know, (laughs) sitting here. But I think that that's an act of generosity. Do you find that? Yeah, it's also. I mean, uh, I uh, we tend I tend to say I tell the story with my sisters where they uh, really compete in between them to present uh, kind of um, much elaborate kind of meal every time I go to visit, and you mustn't take side. You mustn't say always neutral. They will tease you and ask you, oh, so how was, and you mustn't say like, you know, something bad or, or your food is better than hers because you just kind of, you open basically <laughs> war. <laughs> uh, but this is part of their um, culture and, you know, the whole thing with, they, to show you love and affection, yes. they want to feed you and they want to feed you the best they have. So um, when they ask you, did you enjoy it? You always say yes. It was delicious. Because mm. was always, it. always. Yeah, but, but it always is, nearly, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And uh, sometimes it's overwhelming because they they invite you for breakfast and you spend the whole day. I always stay in a hotel now because yes, you, a break. Die. <laughs> yeah. I just want this little corner at the end of the day just to be with myself and you know, kind of away from food and and the family. And it's a wonderful thing that I kind of decided to do because they just give you food, you know, the whole day you just sit there and, you know, they Mm. just eat and eat and eat and drink. I mean, Tara came to my sister's for the day or for a few hours and we just, you know, we were fed and you, th- and you think you've kind of gotten away with it and that kind of the meal is done and then an entirely new table is brought into the room <laughs> and then you realise that the main course of the makaluba, m- uh, which is the, like, the upside down savoury cake, is sort of brought in. So yeah, it's, uh, it's endlessly delightful. But it's funny because now, in lockdown now, everyone's kind of discovering the pleasure of generosity with food and people doing food packages for neighbours or kind of WhatsApp groups on their street. And what's becoming sort of 
not a hobby, but we're just sort of discovering now it's a complete way of life in Palestine in terms of food and generosity and the freezer always being full of enough food to ensure that whoever turns up can be fed. Yeah. Um, um, and it's not, it's not a sort of lifestyle choice. It's just a complete way Yeah, of that's just what you do. I mean, yeah. it's very, very present in my family. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You know, I enjoy cooking a lot. But during isolation, I live alone and cooking for myself didn't give me the same joy at all. And I was really starting to feel kind of really sad about being, you know, not seeing people and feeling trapped. But my niece came up with this idea because we've got quite a big family. I've got four sisters and a brother and then all their children. And my niece came up with an idea that we were going to do what we called the Great Arkel Food Swap. And you got a name, right? And you had to cook for that person and that person had to cook for you. Well, that was like a secret Santa. Yeah. <laughs> and then that person had to bring it over and give it to you and you had that small interaction because you were able to stand on the footpath and do it. And, you know, it has been one of my favourite days of the year wow. just to have that experience because she was cooking. So I got my niece, I drew, I mean, I got the jackpot. She's such a great cook. And the thing was that she's cooking and she knows she's cooking for me. I'm cooking and I know I'm cooking for her. And it gave the food purpose for me. You know, it just gave it meaning, doesn't it? When you think about somebody else and think about the people that you're cooking for. Yeah. yeah no, uh, and also, you know, quite a lot of love goes into that and, uh, attention to detail did you feel any kind of sense of kind of uh, competition oh no i didn't no not at all actually I, I don't tend to feel that with food i'm not good at desserts and you know so certain people in my family do that but no i, I don't with food i do need to have a purpose with it which I kind of right. I love it. I love. I love the idea because in our, in the book, there's. I, I love it when a recipe has someone's name associated to it, mm. associated to it. So in Palestine, like we haven't just called the the easy eggs that that Sammy's dad used to make. But they're called Hassan's easy eggs or his mum's fatouche, his nama's fatouche, and it's just so lovely because Hassan's easy eggs have got such a story behind them of these eggs that his dad used to make and. And now these eggs are becoming loads of other people's eggs because, again, that's yeah. another dish that people are making loads during lockdown. So it's, yeah. it's a really nice thing to connect people. This is a question for you, Sammy. When you're cooking in a restaurant, is that energy and that, that love of food, because you're cooking for strangers, right, and it's a transaction, yeah. does it feel the same? It does because, you know, as a chef, you... Uh, I mean, I grew up in a, in a house where, you know, it's love to feed people. And in the restaurant, it's the same way where, you know, your contact with, with the people is not direct. 
but uh, you have to have the love of feeding to be able to be, you know, cooking all day, six, seven, you know, I don't know how many days you work a week uh, to feed people in a rest in a very busy restaurant with four strangers. Yeah. Um, I think so, it yeah, makes a real difference having the open kitchen, doesn't it? Like in Noppy and yes. also Rovi, you've got the open kitchen. I hate yeah. the idea of, you know, people who are sort of in a, in a hotel basement and sort of sending food up. Um, but then also in the delis, there's a lot of really loyal customers, the regular customers who aren't strangers. Mm. So people yeah. who've been there for the last 15 years. So I think, you know, it's, you know, and all the shop managers very much know their customers. So mm. I think that's one of the joys of Otolenghi having stayed quite small. Mm. I want to tell you a noppy story. I was in London. This was the last time I was in London. So it must have been a couple of years ago now. And I've, I've only got a few friends that live there because I lived there a few years back. And the first friend said to me, now, listen, I want to take you out to this fantastic restaurant. It's going to be a surprise. You meet me on the corner, blah, blah, blah. And of course, it was <laughs> noppy. And it was just, it was on my list anyhow. But it was the most sensational experience. It was absolutely delicious. Anyway, another friend the next night said, now, I want to take you <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a surprise and then so I was at Nobby two yes, nights in a row life one day after another yeah like two nights in a row but you know I enjoyed it equally I ordered differently but I never let on to the other that I'd been there the night before I just never said a word. <laughs> That's hysterical. Did, 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 did the waiters or waiters not say, good to see you again? One of them recognised me and I'm just thinking, oh, I hope she doesn't look at it. It's like having an affair, isn't it? <laughs> don't, don't see how I was here before. But hey, lucky me, both time they paid and both time I got to eat at the finest restaurant in London. Right. <laughs> you get people come in for dinner and then the next day you'll see them coming for breakfast. Yeah, uh, wow. Yeah, a lot of people come for dinner with a partner or friends and then they come for a meeting for breakfast, for example. Yeah. And it's funny sometimes you kind of, they recognize and we get quite a lot of people that come in from abroad anyway to, to yes. Nopi and Robi because of, you know, the whole Tolengi cookbooks and, uh, you know, they're almost like fans that they want to try the restaurant. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you're not you're not so unusual. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm not alone with that. <laughs> I was very discreet, but I felt very very lucky. Hey, listen, I want to talk about hummus, right? Because it is one of my all time favorite thing, and I can't tell you how many texts in a week I get with people saying to me, "How do you make hummus?" Like it's that easy to translate. So a couple of weeks ago, or two weeks ago, in isolation, I made a little video on how to make hummus, right? But it's been yeah. quite controversial because <laughs> now people are coming back and saying, well, that's not how you make it. So talk to me. I mean, it is such, is it really one of the most talked about dishes in the world? There is something about it. There's something about ownership, who owns it. There is something about the method. Where is the best hummus? Talk to me about your experience of it. I mean, it's one of these things that uh, unfortunately got caught in politics as well, it where, did. you know, this whole kind of Israel, Palestine, Lebanese also came kind of to the story where they had the kind of debate about uh, where's the original homo started. Who owns it? Yeah. I mean, I say it's well, yeah. for sure. It's very <laughs> difficult to trace back, first of all. Secondly, each person have it or does it the way they like it. I mean, the way Palestinians do it is quite a lot of tahini in it, uh, lemon and garlic. It's quite... It's quite very, very smooth. And uh, the recipe that we included in Palestine is my grandma, where I, 
nobody did it before that, where she stirred the soda, baking soda into the chickpeas before she added the water. And it, it just works. I mean, the... the, the, the do, do you know, I do that now. You know, the chickpeas float yeah. up. You can just scoop it out. A lot of people spend hours peeling these chickpeas and it's just kind of... Um, Why? Works and it's really smooth. It's delicious. It's uh, just around the amount, the right. To, it's it's very balanced. The right the right amount of kind of um, uh, flavors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and obviously, always starting with the the kind of Arabic creamy nutty tahini is yeah. vital. Sorry. For me, I don't I don't know what the science is, but for me, the um the the magic is in the the ice cube that I chuck into mine. And I don't know what that's doing. And then blitzing it for way long, or for pulsing it for, you know, five, six minutes. But I think people yeah. who do have it for the first time, kind of proper, warm, creamy tahini, it's a complete revelation if you've been brought up on kind of fridge-cold supermarket hummus. Um, it's like with fluffel, you know, it's, I think unless people are actually having it kind of first time from the, fire, from the fryer warm, they just sort of don't realise that actually this is something that needs to be sort of eaten warm yeah. And sort of on the, on the day it's made. Also, you know, it, you know, you have to start it from uh, from scratch with dried chickpeas. Using the you know the, the right tahini plays a big part in that. And the ice, the cubes of ice, I think it, it kind of ma- make this magic because it mollifies the whole thing. You almost get really really kind of uh, worked out when you blitz it, and yeah. sometimes it kind of splits. And the, 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 the ice brings it all together. Well, it's kind of like, you know, when you add the ice, it's, it's like when you make mayonnaise, it just kind of gives it, you know, that oomph yeah. that aerates it to a level. Yeah. Doesn't it? I got, Does I, I, got a, I got a text message the other day from a friend of mine who just made the hummus in Palestine. And I didn't realize, I got my kid to read out this text and it had so many expletives in it. They're like, <laughs> this is not hummus. This is I think they were completely like, oh my God. They never made it. And I was like, wow, okay, Casper, stop reading. (laughs) And, you know, I know that, uh, you know, we've probably all made it out of canned chickpeas at some point. I mean, I I don't think I have, well, not very often. But it just, you can't get the right texture with canned chickpeas, can you? It just Mm. doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. It just tastes very kind of 70s vegan, I think. It gives it a bad reputation. Yeah. And also, it it, uh, Canned chickpeas, they never break down to be able to... No. Uh, also, I find quite often the, the canned chickpeas have a, a thicker skin as well. Yes, that's right. That's why you don't get that smoothness. Maybe, okay, they'd, we, be, maybe they'd be okay with the jarred ones. You know, you can get the big jarred Nava, Navaroni ones. Maybe they'd, yeah. maybe they'd work. But, but, um, but then, you know, the benefit of soaking is you've also got the cooking water, so you can thin it out with that. Oh, well, we, can have a whole, we need to have a whole podcast on hummus. hummus <laughs> oh, and, and also it's so much cheaper as well. Hey, listen, I'm, we've got to wrap up soon, but I want to ask you, Sam, so what would be your favourite all-time dish? Now, I know it's hard and it's like choosing your favourite child and whatever, but if you can say, like, you know, if you were coming to my place for dinner and I said you can have whatever you wanted, just give me your request, what would it be? Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> uh, a very difficult one. Um, I know what Tara is gonna choose. <laughs> uh, I always, you, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I always uh, um, say the msachan because it's such an easy kind of iconic Palestinian dish, and it, it basically just a chicken that you marinate. You can do it the night before and roast it. Takes half an hour to forty minutes, and then lots of caramelized onion with lots of sumac. 
yeah. and uh, good Palestinian olive oil and flatbread. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. it. Yeah. And okay. it's so delicious. <laughs> I can do that. I think I can do that. Um, olive oil. I mean, that's another podcast for sure. But, you know, I have been telling people for years, stop buying supermarket olive oil. Anyway, Tara, what's yours? <laughs> what I mean, do you that, want? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yeah. Um, I don't know. In fact, last night I had the um, the green shakshuka for supper and that just oh, was yeah. so comforting and delicious. And it was such a, it was such a fridge raid of all the kind of herbs that needed using up in the fridge. And then, you just yeah. sort of pop some eggs in and brace them. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the dish that I do most from Thalassine, I think, is the one that's on the US cover, which is the little gem salad with the burnt aubergine yogurt and the smacked cucumber. And then, as Sammy said, the shatter, which is the, yeah. the fermented chili paste that I'm obsessed by. Um, but, I mean, yeah, I, 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 I can't answer, I'm afraid, anything. <laughs> but also, yesterday I made the, the okra that we had in Nazareth. And I thought of you because it's such a very simple dish. It's like uh, just kind of sautéed okra and shatta and spices. And then you add to it cherry tomatoes and uh, halloumi cheese and olives. And that's it. That's it. And just a squeeze lemon at the end. It's delicious. It is delicious. And we both love that dish as well. Opera is something that um, I think might be an acquired taste for a lot of people. Um, Yeah, my husband is a doubter. I've given up on him. Is he? He Yeah. Yeah. It's the texture, I think, sometimes that throws people, but the flavour is fine. Well, we could talk about food um, all day. Um, I can't thank you enough. It's been just such a thrill for me to have you both on this podcast. I love the books. I particularly love this book, Palestine. Um, Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank, thank you, Cheryl. Happy cooking. If you'd like more information about Better Eating, follow us on Facebook or visit bettereating.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, Join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.